Well, good morning. My name's Gary Taylor. No, that was uh, misprint. No, uh, it's Malcolm here. Um, so for those of you who don't know me, um, I'm a member of this uh, fellowship for a number of years. Uh, I'm a profession, by profession, I'm an engineer. You can tell that because I have a blue pen in my pocket and I have a red pen as well. In fact, I have a spare pen in my pocket as a backup <laughs> and a pocket knife in case anyone's pencil needs sharpening through the service. I think uh, just as I've been standing here worshipping with you, I was thinking and reflecting how the Holy Spirit is amazing because no one knew what I was about to talk about. You can see Suffering and Hope is the title of my sermon. And yet um, the words that were chosen, the songs that were sung, and the significance of the event 100 years ago I think is very poignant. And I think that can only be a God thing. So let's join in the ride. My message today, as you see, is about, um, well, first of all, let's pray. Let's just pray. Father, we just commit this time together. Father, speak through me. Father, uh, speak through our, each one of us uh, on this topic of what it means to, be, to suffer and what the Bible says about it. Help us to have clarity of thought and to understand what you want to say to us about this in this day. Amen. So my message today is about suffering and hope. Well, a lot of suffering, actually. But there is a hope part coming. It hasn't been an easy sermon to prepare for and deliver in around um, 20, 25 minutes. And why? Well, it's not because suffering um, is unfamiliar to us. I think uh, most of us have experienced it in the past and or are currently experiencing suffering to various degrees. Right up front, I want to acknowledge those who may be in the midst of some period of suffering. I don't know your circumstances, nor pretend to offer a silver bullet today. I can sympathise and pray that my message helps in some small way your journey. It's also not because the Bible doesn't, doesn't, doesn't say much about suffering. It does, lots. It's because I struggled, I think, to articulate a nice, tidy conclusion. And in that statement lies the very point of the difficulty of presenting a balanced theology of suffering. There is a mystery, an incompleteness in explaining suffering. It's hard to summarise what the Bible says about suffering into a single sentence or two without leaving bits hanging out. It could feel like trying to stuff your whole wardrobe of clothes into a small seven-kilo carry-on suitcase and not being able to zip it up shut properly. Nevertheless, I do have a conclusion of sorts. Actually, it's a song I want to play to you, which is my best attempt at this stage to wrap the message up. But I do suspect we need to come back to this topic again and again in our lives, and I hope our theological understanding of suffering matures at each examination. So with that introduction, let us begin. My first question to you is, what does the word suffering bring to mind? Think about it for a few seconds. Does your mind take you to a scene on the six o'clock news of starving children? Extended bellies, flies crawling around their eyes and mouth, 
in a large camp somewhere remote in the Horn of Africa? Or do you think of a sick relative in pain and in hospital, perhaps near death's door? Or does your mind reflect on a period of deep unhappiness in your work or family life, past or present, where you felt or feel out of control and helpless? Perhaps you think of Job, in the, the ancient story of Job in the Bible, who lost everything but his very life. Or maybe the victims of the recent gun shooting just north of LA on Friday. I also wonder how you define suffering. Now everyone grab their, hold out their left hand, and with your right hand, pinch that flap of skin between your thumb and forefinger. Go on, do it hard. Keep going. Let me suggest to you, keep going, it is not physical pain. You can stop now. There is a distinction between pain and suffering. Pain, when it is removed, is easily forgotten. How's your hand feel? Okay. Now, suffering often feels... I don't mean to trivialise, please, please don't misunderstand me. But now, suffering, of, suffering often involves pain, but true suffering, suffering involves a relational dynamic and a psychological dimension. So a cinnamon for a Christian interpretation of suffering could be affliction. It is physical, it is psychological, and it is social. So the definition I want to work with you this morning concludes that suffering is inherently relational. Question number three. So what can be the worst thing about suffering? I suggest suffering alone. Why? Because we are made by God for relationship. Pastor and author Daryl Johnson writes that at the centre of the universe is relationship. And out of that relationship, you and I were created. Our triune God is a community, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, in relationship. And we were made in his image. And when we suffer alone, we feel less than human, less than what we were meant to be. It becomes dehumanising. Lastly, what is the worst type of suffering? Does anyone recognise this iconic photo taken in 1936 by Dorothy Lange? It's of a 32-year-old migrant mother. Her name was Florence Owens. She's waiting for her partner or husband to return after their car broke down in California during the Great Depression when great dust storms destroyed crops and communities. Can you see the suffering in her eyes? So my answer is that the worst type of suffering is that which isolates us. Why? Because suffering that isolates us relationally impacts at our very core. At the core of our being is relation. Now medical knowledge to reduce physical and mental pain has increased greatly over the last few decades. And today we have a vast array of drugs and therapies we can medicate ourselves, we can, we can access to medicate ourselves. However, however, over the same period of time, the rates of emotional and psychological illnesses have correspondingly increased. In many places, through various societal factors, people have become isolated and consequently demoralised. And they live under heavy loads of pressure both at work and in family life. 
Suicide rates have skyrocketed, not only among adults, but even among our teens and our children. It is reported that 40% of the US population takes antidepressants. And likewise, substance abuse has gone up, um, has gone up uh, dramatically. According to the New Zealand Ministry of Health, the number of people taking antidepressants here has doubled in the past 10 years. One in five New Zealanders will experience depression in their lives, and mental disorders are the third leading, leading cause of loss of health and well-being. Who's noticed the increased focus on mental health in the media of late? Does this seeming increase of human suffering, despite this seeming increase of human suffering, it is apparent that in Western nations, faith in God is diminishing rapidly, and Christianity is becoming more and more marginalised. If Christianity purports to offer hope and the true solution for abundant life and eternity, why do so many ignore the church and seek vain substitutions? You see, suffering and the problem of evil is frequently an argument against the existence and goodness of God. Their cry goes something like, if God exists, and if he is good, why do people, and especially good people, suffer? Now, this question is not new and has been asked for centuries. It has come to be known as the problem of evil or theodicy. It could be a whole sermon series in itself, which we're not doing today. But it is recorded as being first asked by the ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. That means he's not all-powerful. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. That is, he wishes evil upon us. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing, then why call him God? Marie-Hélène de Blois writes in a recent journal article, the church has often fallen short in stepping into people's pain, frequently offering no more than stammering banality that does not suffice nor comfort. Many believers are understandably afraid of the foolishness of the gospel, namely that Christianity without suffering is in fact a paradox, and that a life with Christ gives purpose in pain. Now, I have researched enough. This sermon is based on a lecture course I took at Laidlaw in Bible College. But I've researched enough to know that this view that I've just articulated, that life with Christ gives a purpose in pain, is perhaps but one view. Amongst several slants on the Christian response to human suffering, it is a dominant one, and one I see has some merit. But I also want to present some other views for you to consider. But for now, I want to ask, where does human suffering come from? Where did it start? Much of my message derives from Paul's teaching in Romans. He writes a lot about suffering in chapters 5 and 8. In Genesis 3, the Bible speaks of Adam and Eve disobeying God and bringing sin into the earth. This act caused the fall of humanity the fall had a great effect upon the conditions of the earth as well as upon humankind. Paul says in Romans 5.21 that the fall of Adam and humanity with him has caused sin to reign on earth. We see in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, 
And so death spread to all because all have sinned. So with sin, the consequence of human suffering immediately followed, including death and destruction of human values and humanity itself. Dubois again writes, the power of sin showed itself to be profoundly destructive, rapidly corrupting the world's goodness and beauty with misery permeating into every corner of humanity. You see, in Adam, man became corrupted in mind and body, and all of humanity was complicit in the fall of Adam. So scripture seems to present two kinds of causes of suffering. Several passages in the Old Testament describe disobedience to the law of God, bringing about pain, punishment, and affliction, and the removal from God's blessing. But secondly, suffering takes place in the battle between darkness and light because of the enmity between the seed of the servant and that of the woman. Simply put, there's a cosmic war going on. And that produces evil. Throughout history, many views, philosophies, and different religions have attempted to explain suffering and death. And many misunderstandings have resulted, to put it politely. Yet none of the worldviews outside of Christ have found a sufficient answer to the question of suffering. And many alternate worldviews struggle with the logical problem of evil. The world in general sees the Christian worldview on suffering as inconsistent. I would suggest the root misunderstanding for this false theology is the belief that God is made for man. Humankind has constructed our own view of God which serves our purpose. But this is not what scripture teaches. Rather, we are made for his glory and honour. Did you notice we just what we just sung? Sean Griffiths, let your name be glorified, let your name be lifted up. Right from the beginning, we can understand that God made humankind in his own image, both male and female, and that we were conceived by God through creation to reflect his glory. So with that background in mind, let's look at a few worldviews. We have some time both past and current, that try to explain suffering and death. Some include a view of God, some do not. Now, a word of caution, these isms are by default brief generalisations. There would be a wide variety of views in each camp, but I hope they are nonetheless indicative of their general persuasion. Atheism. A position that states there is no God. Their motto may be, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Ultimately, we are living a meaningless life. Atheism also neglects the fact that evil is the evidence for God's existence. Atheism simply leaves suffering in its raw form unanswered. Evolutionism, in its purer form, is the idea that the universe is the result of random cosmic accidents. The true evolutionist must hold that given billions of years, Evolution and self-perfection of things should have exterminated all suffering by now. Secondly, the evolutionist does not accept that moral evil and spiritual evil cannot evolve from mindless matter, but only from agents with souls. In fact, in the evolutionist mindset, death is a good thing, for it is surely part of the advancement of the evolutionary process. 
Pantheism holds to the notion that God is everything and nothing special as well. So we have a view that all that exists is part of God, the greatest evil as well as the greatest good. So suffering and death are not a real threat, for there is no separation from human, the human and the divine. There is no afterlife and no eternal condemnation. We are completely autonomous. Have you heard of deism? Sometimes known as the clockmaker analogy. God created a clock, wound it up, set it on the Mount of Peace and walked away. It says that God created the world, then left it alone to run according to natural laws. Thus God is neither good nor evil, and hence suffering is purely um, an evil caused by humans without a solution in God. God has no sovereignty and no control over the world and is indifferent to human life and suffering. Deism elevates reason and rationalism above scripture. Many famous people are deists. Benjamin Franklin, Einstein, there's a whole list of famous deists in history. What about fatalism? It's the opposite of deism. It acknowledges God's involvement in the world and considers all to be in God's plan. Consequently, suffering is God's desire, his plan, and his will. Though the sovereignty of God is acknowledged, God's goodness, love, and compassion are hard to believe and hard to embrace. A fatalistic view of God unfortunately leaves people with a bitter, cynical view of God who does not remove their suffering, even delights in pain. Here's a strange one, Satanism. Unfortunately, it is on the rise in many Western nations. It is considered the literal or symbolic worship of Satan. It holds that Satan now rules the world, and not God, not the God of light. Many have bitterly chosen uh, Satan's side, believing they are now on the winning team. Therefore, in a twisted way, suffering is to be celebrated. Buddhism. Buddha lived an ascetic life and is known for his four truths. Life is suffering. The cause, secondly, the cause of suffering is desire, greed, and selfishness. Thirdly, ending suffering can be achieved by ending desire. And finally, ending that desire means giving up on selfishness and ego. Though some of these truths resonate with Christianity, Buddha never was a Christian. Christians do hold similar views of self-denial and selflessness, but there are fundamental differences between Buddha's teaching and the Bible's. What about the parent of Buddhism, Hinduism? It sees evil as an illusion of the mind and does not exist in reality. Ironically, denying the existence of evil has never solved its cause, but has merely shifted suffering to the realm of an unreality. And here's another one, libertarianism. These are views that seek to maximise political freedom and autonomy, emphasising freedom of choice, voluntary association and individual judgement. This... They, they simply, they're simply, there are good trees that produce good fruit and there are bad trees that produce bad fruit. The libertarian view makes God the author of evil and therefore gives God the blame for suffering. But what about Christianity or Christian views that derive from our Protestant and Catholic um, heritages? The reformational Protestant view places much emphasis on the sovereignty of God. In summary, Martin Luther and John Calvin, the fathers of the Reformation, developed an a theology of the cross, which consequently had the implication that great blessing for the believer will come through great 
suffering. The key verse would be the words of Joseph found in Genesis 50, 20. God meant it for good when he said that to his brother. We looked at that last week. John Piper sums up this view. Um, and I quote, How God governs all events in the universe without sinning and without removing responsibility from man and with compassionate outcomes is mysterious indeed. But that is what the Bible teaches. God works all things after the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11 Now, I've put together my own interpretation, which is a little bit stereotypical and a little bit tongue-in-cheek. And like most analogies, it is an imperfect model, but hopefully it, it is memorable. Imagine the Christian travelling along life's journey towards Christ, represented by the cross. The journey is not straightforward. There are unforeseen obstacles along the way. But through prayer and guidance by the Holy Spirit, the Christian will stub his big toe and have to remove some of the blockages out of the way, which cause some suffering, but will eventually make a path to the end, rejoicing in the challenges he faced. Whereas... Um, Yep, there we are. That's the pathway. Pick a path through. Move a few rocks. Hit a few. Whereas the Protestants would place their focus on Jesus' death, the Roman Catholic places their focus more on Jesus' suffering. The key verse would be um, Colossians 1, 24. In my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Also, we find this theme in 2 Corinthians 1.5, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. In summary, it makes suffering a, a holy and a necessary thing, perhaps even masochistic. It glorifies suffering so that the person not only accepts suffering, but sees it as a good thing and may say, bring it on, more is better. If the Protestant model said, um, watch out for blockages on the road, but hopefully we'll find a clear path through, the Roman Catholic perspective fully anticipates blockages, and the more the better. In fact, the more you stub your toe, the more you bruise your shin, the more you identify with Christ and authenticate your salvation and redemption in Christ. The, uh, the theology of prosperity teachers places less focus on the sovereignty of God and more on humans' intensity of faith to overcome suffering and triumph over evil. A key verse would be John, 3 John 2. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. And I'll drop to the bottom one there, um, John 10.10. I have come that we may have, th have life, that they may have life, and they may have it more abundantly. Kenneth Copeland sums up this view, and I quote, Tradition has taught that God uses sickness, trials, and tribulations to teach us. This idea, however, is not based on the Bible. God has never used sickness to discipline his children and keep them in line. Sickness is of Satan... And God doesn't need Satan to straighten us out. And from Joel Osteen, 
who's probably preaching in a few hours' time in the largest church in America, 43,000 people. He says, maybe Alzheimer's disease runs in your family genes, but don't succumb to it. Instead, start boldly declaring, God is restoring health unto me. I am getting better and better every day in every way. The picture of the Christian life I have for you from this persuasion is that though there may be obstacles, you should never have to stub your toe if you have enough faith and pray in the Spirit. For Jesus will blow them up and remove the blockages out of the way, such that the path is made smooth and straight directly towards the cross. I've included an interesting one here, process theology. It's not one you may have heard of, but, um, and to be honest, I question whether to include it. Um, perhaps some in the congregation may question whether it is factually Christian. Uh, there has been a lot of, um, or some, some um, strong liberal and um, environmentalist, environmentalism um, persuasions uh, moved into it. Um, I did study it in, in my lectures, but briefly, um, it identifies itself with panentheism. God and the world are not identical, but they are interdependent. Process theology denies the eight classical elements of theism, which most of us would believe, and they believe there is no guarantee of an ultimate triumph over evil and suffering because, well, God is changing. He is influenced by us, and we are influenced by him. We need each other in a dynamic, mutual, interdependent way. A key verse is uh, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And a key proponent would be Marjorie Sakoki. And she, would, she says that through the death of Jesus, he did not achieve anything on the cross in the way of victory over sin, but he did model love and forgiveness and justice in the darkest hours of his life. Similarly, she says, resurrection did not achieve anything apart from demonstrating that hope, it's always possible. The picture of the Christian life in this view is that it just wanders along. The path changes as God changes, and uh, it's not really clear that if there is an end in the end, actually, in sight. So let's return to Paul now in Romans, um, in Romans 5, 1 to 12. Now we don't know what the church was exactly going through when Paul wrote to them. He had not visited Rome yet, nor had he met the people who were about to read his letter. But we can assume, like any average first century church, that they were afflicted with hardships, perhaps persecution, death, economic burdens, and temptations to stray from the faith. And in the midst of what Paul writes in verses 3 and 4, um, we read that we rejoice or boast in our sufferings because suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. It is a kind of nice, perfect, circular model. One just follows the other, surely. It would make a good poster or bumper sticker. Certainly Paul knew firsthand about suffering, which gives him tremendous credibility. 
And if he were looking back on some past experience, it would make more sense. But here he is writing in the present tense, right here and now, which means that he is talking about immediate suffering, about fresh wounds and new grief. In the midst of, of the rawness of suffering, the model can seem, seem a little easy, a little too easy. Now, this is just one passage on suffering. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But it's this point that I sort of struggled no doubt this is helpful to many, many Christians, but I want to acknowledge that there will be also people in this congregation, friends and relatives you know, who don't ever make it past the suffering stage. There will be people who somehow find the ability to endure, but the experience has left them utterly broken in spirit. Again, there will be people who scoff at hope because... Hope's disappointed them so many, many times, and they cry out, how long? I read only yesterday the latest, in the latest Christianity Today Online about Johnny Erickson Tata, titled, Suffering Helps Me See Heaven. Now, Johnny, of course, is famous to those of my generation for suffering a broken neck while diving into the sea at the age of 18 and becoming a quadriplegic. She writes how she still suffers physical affliction and emotional pain, needing to lie down on the sofa several times a day. She makes the point that scripture continues to present us with this eternal perspective. In 2 Corinthians 4:17, the Apostle Paul writes, For our light and our momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And also the Apostle Peter writes to Christian friends being flogged and beaten. In all this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. You see, how do you rejoice when you're being thrown to the lions? Johnny says this kind of indifference about gut-wrenching suffering used to drive me crazy. Stuck in a wheelchair, she says, and staring out the window at the fields on our farm, I wondered, Lord, how in the world can you consider my troubles light and momentary? I will never walk or run again. I've got a leaky leg bag. I smell like urine. My back aches. I'm trapped in front of this window. Years later, however, the light dawned for her. The spirit-inspired writers of the Bible simply had a different perspective, an end-of-time view. This is why scriptures can seem at times so irritatingly out of touch with reality, brushing past huge philosophical problems and personal agony. That is just how life is when you are looking from the end. Perspective changes everything. I said at the start that I struggled to conclude the sermon because of the many things to say. But I think I also struggled in part because of qualification. Who am I to talk about suffering? H have I struggled like Johnny Erickson Tata? 
Or like Asia Bibi, the Christian wife and mother just released from a Pakistani prison and with very real and credible death threats hanging over her life this very day. What qualifies me to share on this topic? I've lived a blessed life, which I'm truly thankful. Yes, there's been some sufferings, particularly during our time in Borneo. I'm going to leave those stories for another day. I know my mum at the moment is suffering with, with chemotherapy and, and just the pain is incredible. So it, it's, it's close. But for now, let me conclude, and I admit somewhat inadequately, by stating four things and then we'll have our song. God is not the cause of evil, nor responsible for evil. Nevertheless, he solved the problem of evil by his death and resurrection. This proves his goodness. Secondly, in 1 Peter 2.21, Peter says, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow. Now that's not necessarily going to be easy. Romans 8.18, the sufferings of the present are not comparable to the glory yet to be revealed in us. So it's that perspective coming in. And my last point would be to say, don't suffer alone. Share with a close friend. I'm going to leave the last word to Krista Wells. Who is she, you may ask? Natalie Grant sung a moving song about grief, loss, suffering, and hope called Held. came out a few years ago. However, the writer of the song was actually Krista Wells. Her inspiration for the song came from three different women that greatly influenced her life. Each of these women experienced the loss of a family member. And I think it's always powerful to know the story behind a song. And this one is no exception. Krista says that she met Patty. She was a young widow. She had three kids. And she told the story to, to um, Krista of losing her husband. I don't know more than that, but that's the idea. Three kids lost her husband. The second woman is Vanitha. Sounds almost Indian, the name. And she experienced polio growing up. And she had an infant son, two months old. His name was Paul, and he died of a heart defect. And the first verse of the song refers to Vanitha and his son. You'll see the thing, two months, and that's the, that's the reference to this infant son. The third lady is a lady by the name of Sherry. This is, in fact, Krista's mother-in-law. Sherry lost her daughter, Erica, at birth. She spoke through the tears about the pain of carrying a child to term and then having to let her go without even getting to take her home from the hospital. She told Krista about the still, small voice that spoke to her in that very same delivery room. It said, you have to choose how you will carry this loss after this moment. You can choose bitterness 
or you can choose to let me wrap you up in peace. That can't be explained. And that will lead to hope. The point of the song is that in those moments of deepest suffering, when platitudes and even good scriptural verses such as all things work for good, said with the most sincere of intentions doesn't cut it. You can choose to trust that you are not alone and that everything you suffer here will someday be redeemed. In the middle of that heartache, we are held, held up, held together by the one who has walked here on this very earth and knows the same pain. And he also holds all time, every story, my story, your story, the greatest story in his hands. Let's listen and read and meditate on these words.
my point in bringing those four persuasions of suffering, those Christian views, was not to mock, was to acknowledge they have been helpful for many, many. But I also want to add that it doesn't always, there are some that haven't been helped. And so we won't know the full understanding of suffering this side of eternity, perhaps. And for some of us, we just need to know and we need to be held. Amen. There is tea and coffee, but I think that if you've been challenged or stirred and you want to just acknowledge that you're suffering, I invite you to come to the front. I'll be down here. Maybe the elders can come forward. Or simply just turn to a very close friend and just say, I'm suffering. I'm in the midst of it. Just pray with me. Don't suffer alone.